Hey, TUL listeners. A special announcement. August 3rd, Nathan will be speaking in Virginia. He'll be speaking at the Valley Pike Farmer's Market. This is just off of I- I-81, Interstate 81, south of Harrisonburg. So if you're in that area, Nathan will be speaking. This is a pretty cool venue, by the way. And his topic is, do I need community to know who I am? It's a very Nathan-centric title if I've I've ever heard one. So Nathan would love to see you, love to hear your questions, love to chat with you. So if you're in that area, remember Valley Pike Farmer's Market just off I-81, August 3rd. Love to see you there. It's July 4th, so happy 4th. That provides us with a perfect opportunity to discuss the distinction between nationalism and patriotism with a little help from Wendell Berry and his latest book, The Need to Be Whole. This will be in some ways a challenging conversation, but we hope ultimately that this is helpful to you and maybe we'll provide some good food for thought and maybe stimulate some helpful conversations while you're gathered with your family and friends on this holiday. Hello and welcome to Thinking Out Loud. I'm your co-host, Nathan Rittenhouse. And I'm your co-host, Cameron McAllister. Happy 4th of July to you who are Americans listening in on this and happy 4th of July to you, everybody who's not an American listening to this. Hope you have a happy one, whatever part of the world you're listening from. But today in America, we celebrate um, some seismic shifts that happened in the geopolitical nature that led to the formation of what it is that we now are. And we thought that this would be a great day to talk about nationalism and patriotism. And this is something that Cameron and I have been having some, I think, helpful conversations on for some time. And we want to make some distinctions that I think you who are listening will find helpful if you haven't thought of them in this way. And we're largely going to be drawing from uh, a distinction between nationalism and patriotism that we got from Wendell Berry. Back earlier in the year, I had read Wendell Berry's new book, The Need to Be Whole, Patriotism and the History of Prejudice. And some of the conversations Cameron and I were having, he's like, I need to read that too. So Cameron read it as well. Uh, we would recommend it to you as kind of an edgy. Um, he says things that he was probably encouraged not to say about race and land and work. And, you know, it's going to be about agriculture if Wendell Berry's involved in it. Mm-hmm. But um, let me lay out for you briefly the distinction that he makes that I found to be helpful and then get Cameron to jump in here with some observations and some uh, anecdotes and other quotes. And then I want to read some quotes from some of the authors that he quotes. But Barry makes the distinction of patriotism being a love for land or the land or like your home as related to geography and nationalism, the love of an idea or an ideal. So patriotism, geography, nationalism, an idea or an ideal. And the maybe one of the scandalous ways in which he plays this out is he says, you see both of those expressed in the Civil War. So he would um, recognize that slavery was a big part of the Civil War, but would say, okay, you take the 17-year-old, dirt-poor, barefoot Confederate boy from North Carolina who's fighting in the trenches. He is not fighting for the right of some guy three miles down the road who's super wealthy to own slaves. Um, He's in that same battle, but his motivation is he thinks he is protecting and defending his land against a foreign invasion. 
So he is fighting for, um, people would say Lee fought not for the South. Lee fought for Virginia, for his homeland. He had, you know, the choice to lead the Union Army, but went back and fought for the South in order to protect all that he knew in his, um, his land. Now, recognizing fully that there were ideas embedded around that that were needed to be corrected, that's there. But Barry would point out and say the, that the North was fighting for an idea, which was United States. So there's a nationalistic idea of what the nation ought to be that was an idea that was independent of geography, where the South was working on, largely speaking, in the minds of the individual soldiers, a defense of geography. And so therein lies the fun, the foundational and fundamental shift that gets teased out in broader sections of this book between a love for the land and a love for an idea. And that is one that Christians have, I think, historically struggled to balance out how to handle that well, and massively so in our current time. So lots more to say on that, but I want to flip it over to Cameron to make some opening comments uh, as well in case I missed out on anything in the introduction. Yeah. What what strikes me is that I come to this with a strange sort of outsider's perspective because I don't really have a land of my own, Nathan. And mm-hmm. I've I've been keenly I've become more keenly aware of that as the conversation has centered on nationalism in the United States, especially in recent years, because I'm a third culture kid. There's a story, I think I've told this before, I'm thinking out loud. I don't remember it. I was three years old. Somebody asked me where I was from. I burst into tears, apparently, because <laughs> I didn't know where I was from. Cameron's and patriotism parents, is going to be low. Correct, yes. And so I remember somebody once calling me, oh, it's just sort of a hybrid background. Thanks. <laughs> but yeah, Scottish dad, mom, military kid from America. My mom was born in West Virginia, incidentally. Huzzah. And then... Yes, huzzah. C- converge in Austria. And I lived there until I was 14 years old. So in terms of what Barry is talking about, I suppose the land closest to me at that, I mean, in my formative, well, I suppose the early formative years was a little town on the border of Vienna called Gerasdorf, which I haven't been back to in a long time. It was reading this book was also a convicting experience for me because so many of the trends that Wendell Berry is critiquing about post-industrial life are in many ways modeled in my own life. Here I am in the suburbs, person who, you know, relocated from the place of my birth, travels quite quite a bit and not, I'm not self-sufficient. <laughs> not mm-hmm. not in the way Barry is describing. And I think it's interesting. So just a a side note for some of you who are prospective readers, maybe interested in this book, the longest section in this book and the one that occupies most of Barry's thoughts is on work and Mm -hmm. what has happened to work in, you know, the the history of work in the United States and the notion of self-sufficiency and what's happened today and the whole upwardly mobile mindset. So just that came as a little bit of a surprise to me. But, well, but it's not disconnected, yeah. though, at all from the concept no. of patriotism. Because, so, well, let's start on the other end of this. So Barry looks at something like, you know, a, a, a massive city built in a super arid spot in the West. And right. and I've had that thought, too. Like, who thought it was a good idea to build a city here? Like, there's no water. Um, and, Los Angeles, maybe? <laughs> well, yeah. yeah, all kinds Nevada, of Nevada, yeah. Nevada, Phoenix. You know, um, the, we could go down the list there, but the... So Barry would say America lives in its mind, not in its land. 
So he would say yes. the nationalistic element there is we have an idea of what it means to conquer and to build and to live somewhere that's disconnected from what the geography is built to sustain. But he make he takes it even farther, and it's not just you know arid climates. He said, urban America lives on the extraction of rural America. So you're you're plundering the land that is your country in order to make your lifestyle work. And if it's not you know rural America, pick your other country that we haul stuff in from. So he would see in patriotism a recalibration of work of what it means to honor the place that you actually live as a way of a cultured life that's stable and out of a deep sense of love for the land. Now, he's he's a consistent extremist on this where he would say, hey, look, I have solar panels on my house and that's kind of a neat idea, but they're ugly and my wife and I don't love them. Like they just don't seem to fit yeah. into the, you know, and so he's looking at the aesthetic of a land, even if something, is, you know, so, so this, this conflation of ideas and nationalism and geography and patriotism has so many different ways you can run with it that it really, I mean, of course, Wendell Berry is going to connect everything to everything, but I think this, this gets helpful for us as Christians. Um, but Cameron has something he wants to say first. Well, he does have a very helpful historical anecdote, which is an actual conversation that took place that we have courtesy of John, John Quincy Adams's diary. But it was a, it was a conversation that he was having with another man named John Calhoun. Some of you will know that. Essentially, Calhoun argued that there were certain forms of labor, certain forms of work that were, that were manifestly degrading and therefore fit only for slaves. And Barry sees in this something very sad and tragic and very important because a certain, basically forms of self-sufficiency, I mean, working in your own field, for instance, as that, that would have been the case here when these two people were talking about this. Well, Calhoun was describing what all humans throughout all time have done to live. Precisely. And so, and it's also high, it's a very elitist notion. So back to Nathan, the example that Nathan was giving about the barefoot poor farmer in, you know, North Carolina, most people, and this is not in, this is any, so when we talk about this, we're, we're going to be speaking with a high degree of care and nuance because part of what makes this book so jarring is that it, I would argue this is a responsible work of history. So that means he's Wendell Berry is not going to paint in terms of broad categories and abstracts. He's going to go into very specific examples to the degree that we can we can reconstruct history, which, by the way, is if you think about if you think on that a little bit, think about a day in your life and think about how history might work. You're going to you're going to very quickly face some of the strange paradoxes of responsible history. And you'll understand why people say history is written by the victors and, you know, statements like that, even though they're, you know, not completely true, but there's, there's a kernel of truth there. But he's going to point out that slavery in the South was also a fairly elitist institution because people who had many, you know, many slaves were people of wealth and, and stature. That's not in any way to diminish the absolute atrocity that chattel slavery is. No, but what he's but saying is you can't look at some poor kid fighting and say, well, slavery is bad, therefore he's evil. Correct. And see, and that's where I would say you're putting on a responsible historian's hat when you do that. You're looking at a big, an overarching theme of the need to be whole 
is a common thread of humanity, which is a controversial thing to do today because, once again, if you if you look at some of the trends present in identity politics, one of the implicit denials there, and this, this runs the risk of sounding a bit abstract, so feel free to push me on this, Nathan, and, and we can try to unpack it a little bit further. Yeah. But one of the implicit assumptions in a lot of identity politics is essentially this. I, I alone have access to my experiences and my own you know, personal inward experiences. Nobody else does. Nobody whatsoever can speak mm-hmm. t- for me in those terms unless I grant them willingly access and that might be me as a let's I'll just give some current example me as a say marginalized person or if somebody may say me as a trans person nobody can speak into my trans experience unless I maybe grant them access nobody can speak for me because my my experience is so isolated and utterly unique that only I have unfettered access to it if you say that, and it's very understandable, that's a very, you know, typically individualistic statement, which we're all very accustomed to. But what's happening there is you're implicitly denying a common thread of humanity. You're moving into idea rather than geography. You're moving into idea rather than geography. You're moving away from particulars. And Wendell Berry is a little bit like in that famous painting of the philosophers, you know, you've got Plato pointing up at the sky and you've got Aristotle pointing down at the ground. Of course, Barry isn't pointing at the ground. He's pointing at the soil, darn it. <laughs> he's very concerned about soil erosion and what grows in that soil. But he wants he wants to keep our eyes on particulars, particular people, particular faces. You care about race relations? Again, race relations, that's a great, that's a big abstract category. Who do you actually know? So Barry gives a lot of specific examples of African-Americans who were friends, who were people in his, in his own life. And yes, he, he looks at the slavery that was, that, was, that was present in his own family line as well. Mm-hmm. So all of this, it's, it's uniquely, tell me if I'm wrong about this, Nathan. A book like this is problematic in our cultural moment, but in and of itself, it's actually an honest and responsible reckoning with a human problem is the way I would look at it. Oh, it's probably the the book that I've read most that feels the most honest and the most helpful, even though it says all of the wrong things. Well, one of those, one of those I mean, wrong when I things. I use wrong, wrong in quotes there. Uh, wrong in quotes. Yeah. Wrong in quotes. But one of those wrong things that I think we should bring up here, and this, this has a direct bearing on the distinction between nationalism and patriotism but it brings in all the tensions of our nation's history as well, is his section on Robert E. Lee. And that was the section that, and even even says in that chapter, I have many friends told me not to write this. And I have pressed forward because, you know, basically in the name of honesty and transparency. And also, I mean, I think Wendell Berry is 89, 88 years old. Yeah, he's kind of at the point where, what are you going to do to him? He's past the age of caring there. So, the portrait he gives of Robert E. Lee, he doesn't let him off the hook by any means. That's not what's happening. But he does see him as a kind of tragic figure. So Robert E. Lee is, on the one hand, opposed to slavery in principle. But when he's presented with the choice to turn against Virginia, which is, it's not his, that's his, that's his state. Those are his people. 
Barry points out that we have a very hard time conceiving of that type of belonging anymore nowadays. Mm-hmm. We're so deracinated. We, we're so individualistic. But as Barry construes it, and I think this is probably right, it was never really much of a choice for Robert E. Lee. Now, to be absolutely clear, he's not saying that he did the right thing. He's not. He's calling him a tragic figure. The word he But he's uses saying is what he did makes sense. He's saying what he did makes sense. Given where, and by the way, you read this book, you're going to see firsthand how incomprehensible the foolishness of the cross really is. So if you, it's if only you, 486 pages. So read it this right. weekend. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, just just digest that over the weekend. Good light reading. Going to the beach. Bring this. You'll have some great conversations. No, seriously. <laughs> yes, but you know he he shows you though that I mean if you're if you're locked into worldly wisdom you're going to routinely be presented with decisions that are that are going to put put you in basically an impossible dilemma and for Robert E Lee in his time that that was a that's a paradigm example of a man who would not turn his back on his people so Barry is willing to acknowledge a certain nobility in that even as it involves great moral wrongness and yeah and that's just that's just to point out that if you're only going to follow the exigencies of this world yeah yeah well so but what happens is if we conflate nationalism and patriotism we don't know what to do with that lump but barry is working to separate out patriotism as a virtue in, in yes. its richest sense of saying the idea of home and caring for what is under your stewardship and loving the place that you live and thinking broadly about how you work with it and around it in the community that's based on it and all of that is a deeply moral and, and holistic thing. So Barry would be very okay with the idea of Christian patriotism. And I'm going to give you a quote here uh, in a minute mm-hmm. that I think plays with this. But, and I th- and hear me out on this. I think there's a massively overstated threat of Christian nationalism. Like it seems to be like the favorite hobby horse of the more liberal media publications is like, they're all coming for us in our sleep kind of thing. But um, that's, that's not the case, but there is a helpful distinction here. So he's quoting um, John Lucas, who wrote this in 1992. Um, So I'm going to read several sentences here as a quote. When Hitler and Mein Kampf said, quote, I was a nationalist, but not a patriot. He knew exactly what he meant, and so ought we. Patriotism is defensive, while nationalism is aggressive. Patriotism is rooted to the land, to a particular country, while nationalism is connected to the myth of a people, indeed to a majority. Patriotism is traditionalist. Nationalism is populist. Listen to this. This is an important quote here. Patriotism is not a substitute for religious faith, whereas nationalism often is. It may fill the emotional, at least superficial, spiritual needs of people. It may be combined with hatred. The ardent nationalist, said Duff Cooper, is always the first to denounce his fellow countrymen as traitors. And mm. so the reason that I think this poor, the, the distinction I want to pull out there is the idea that patriotism is not a replacement for a religious idea but nationalism quickly can become that. And so loving the land that you live in and celebrating that as a Christian is a good thing. I think you 
you can properly ground that um, in the fact that God ordains the times and places that we would live that we're made in his image and we have a special care for the places that we are put, the communities down to the geography in which we inhabit, and it's going to affect and influence the culture and the styles and the way in which we live our lives. And that's deeply compatible with everything that Christ taught. Nationalism would be a religious identity that's based off of the concept of a nation in which we have a preconceived idea. Uh, maybe this is uh, Plato pointing to the sky here, um, but mm -hmm. a politician could do that as well to say, here is the, the ideal that needs to be imposed um, on a nation. So, so Hitler, by Hitler saying that he was a nationalist and not a populist, he was using Germany, even though he maybe didn't have a deep love for Germany physically, he was using Germany with a nationalistic idea about what society should look like and who should be um, an active part of it and what should be happening economically and elsewise. And so you don't care about borders when you're a nationalist per se, because you have an idea that you want to perpetuate. Whereas if you're bound by geography as a patriot, then that gives you some distinction about what it is that you're saying that you love in the first place. So I wanted to, to, to put that on the table as a, as a variable to, to recognize the, the tension that inherently lies between religion and nationalism, but not religion and patriotism, which would be wise for us then to just keep those two things separate as we're talking about what it is that we are and what it is that we celebrate when we're thinking Christianly about the independence of our country. And one of the outworkings of this book is that all of us, to a person, are prone to nationalism, not just politically conservative, alt-right people, all of us. And well, yeah, what should to... the nation look like? I mean, every every uh, political campaign is a nationalist. Well, that sounds a little hard to say, but by and large, it's kind of true. But also, well, part of it also has to do with the way we are driven more by innovation and ideas and ideals than we are by actual consideration of what we're dealing with in front of us. So again, examples would be cities built in sort of desert regions where water is scarce. Or swamps we, right on the coast. <laughs> right. I mean, and if you look, this is from the, I mean, basically American history is really punctuated by this tendency from, you know, the the expansion, you know, the frontier sort of myths and all of that. I mean, the idea is is very much one of kind of aggressive control and and domination and a lack of reckoning with the actual limitations of geography and what we're dealing with. And so Barry is going to very consistently sort of catalog our <laughs> the ways we run we we run roughshod over the land because it's a it's a picture of of that recklessness in us because we i mean it's just basically expansion at all costs we want this particular crop here all the time i mean one interesting example of this i just i think of Barry now when i see stories like this so like so many of you i like sriracha sauce and if you've been paying attention at all you'll notice that sriracha is missing from the supermarket shelves. Have you noticed that? And I was just looking at this yesterday. So this is now year two of the sriracha shortage. And bottles of sriracha, if you buy them online, are going for as much as $120. Restaurants are having their sriracha sauce stolen. And what happened? Well, the peppers that are used there was there was a there was a famine, and the peppers that that are you know harvested for the sriracha crops 
aren't available. I mean, there's a huge shortage and there's no end in sight. And so, you know, I'm sitting there, I'm just outraged. Well, where's my sriracha? And like a typical modern Western, like a typical American, I think this is something that tastes good to me. I should be able to have it all the time, anytime I want it, whenever I want it, regardless of the seasons, regardless of, you know, weather patterns. After all, technology is here and it's magic. So it should just appear on the, on the, you know, you know, obviously I'm giving you a bit of a character at my own expense here, but we, we think we do tend to think like that by default. And because of that, we're driven more by ideals and innovation than we are actually by particulars. And that's what kind of caters to that sort of that abstract thinking that takes away the human face from what we're doing. The, you know, the workers who have to harvest those peppers in the first place, thinking about the, you know, the, the seasons that are needed. And if there's, you know, if there's, there are droughts, how that's going to affect everything. All of that just needs to be taken into consideration, but we're conditioned to do the opposite of that. Yeah. Well, so I, I well, right. So I, I almost feel defensive because I love innovation and I love technology and I love pushing well, the too. boundaries yeah, and, and those like, um, you know, and, and, and I've always like, my life has been just one, like one upping myself after another of like, Hmm, cool. I can ride my bicycle with no hands. I bet I can ride a unicycle now, I, but I can ride it yeah, backwards. But- now I can ride an eight foot unicycle. Now I can ride a eight foot unicycle and juggle, you know, like I'm always adding one level of innovation to the, you know, so there's, but there are different types of innovation though. There are innovations of adaptation, which means that you're taking into account the limitations of your surroundings and you're adapting to them. And then there are, then, then there are innovations that are attempts to overcome those boundaries. Right. And they can for a time, but, at increasing cost. And so we love, I mean, I love American innovation as well, Nathan. That's part of what makes the nation, this nation great and it's worth celebrating. But we have a lot of innovation that's, we're, we're, we're basically good at pushing boundaries and overcoming them, but they're usually, it's at great cost. You know, mm-hmm. one of the ones that, that Barry will point to repeatedly is soil erosion, you know, and some of the farming, the industri- basically the whole industrial farming complex, which is well, not only he, result. Yeah. It, yeah. And he's edgy too, because he thinks that the green and the, the green industrial revolution is not going to be good for the land either. So he's like, oh yeah, let's cut down the forest to cover no. the solar panels. You know, so he sees both. He's, he's. I mean, he is critical of the coal industry and has been for a long time and a lot of other fossil fuel extraction. Well, it's more of the but, same, I think, if I'm reading Barry correctly. Yeah, it's it's yeah. more, yeah, it's, it's shortcuts, it's ways around, you know, through the supposed magic of innovation, but it doesn't actually, we have to slow down and we have to do less, better, if we actually want to see any real healing happening. <laughs> well, he keeps put, put, coming back to like, I have to have a button to push to roll down the window in my car. You know, oh yeah, he comes back to that. The, yeah, that's where he sounds like a cranky old man. But you know, he's <laughs> he's not entirely wrong about that, of course. Either I mean, I think. And what's interesting? Oh, by the way, for I'm, you younger listeners, cars used to have a, a crank handle on the inside of the door that you rolled the window down by moving your wrist. Yeah. So you had to actually okay. manually roll your windows down. That was the thing back in the day. Or if you drive the back kind of in my day, yeah. <laughs> that's funny. People used to trek to their school three miles or ten miles in the snow, but back in our day, we had to manually roll the windows down, <laughs> and phones but, were know, attached to the wall by a cord. <laughs> Nathan's still might be attached to the easy, easy, easy. But 
you know, I, I just, I guess part of the, the difficulty here is a lot. I've, I've been looking through a lot of the critiques of this book and there are many, and some of them, you know, bring up maybe some, some decent points, but there's a, there's a sort of, there's a common theme that emerges in critiques of the need to be whole. And that is this, you know, this is a utopian vision. You know, this is unrealistic. Wendell Berry, I mean, slow down. How are we ever, you know, you, you can't, you can't slow down. You can't, you know, th- this, this train has left the station. We can't stop this way of life. And part of what's interesting is that those critiques are playing right into what he says in the book because mm-hmm. he points out the notion that all of this is now necessary. We must live like this. Is That's a powerful assumption. And part of the gift of the Christian imagination is the ability to see things otherwise. But one of the costs that comes with that is that you're going, you will look unrealistic. You may look utopian, although I don't think there's anything that Wendell Berry is saying is, is utopian or unrealistic. In fact, I think he would probably counter and say, no, no, what would be unrealistic is to think that we can keep doing the same thing that we're doing, maybe shop in some green techniques here and not have huge, have a huge price to pay. That's well, and, that's the unrealistic view. <laughs> yeah, and he would see all of our social unrest as a very real thing, but would link it back to some of these other foundational concepts. Can I mm-hmm. can I turn like let me get you going on another parallel track here, in the sense that I think my grandpa once said to me something to the effect that what we need is people who are willing to live what the World War II vets died for. And, and so mm. a sense of like, sometimes it's easier to die for something than it is to live for something. But if you, you don't have to go that far back. Like I was just at the funeral of, of a World War II vet two weeks ago or something. And to like, look at that entire mindset of what it meant to live in a place and to have a family and a job and be invested in your community. Um, and you just think like, that was a different time in which people thought very holistically about the impact of their life on everything and everybody around them. And felt mm-hmm. like they were responsible for preserving, protecting, building, growing, providing. Um, there's, there, like, so the reason that it's not a utopia is because it's been the common experience of humanity to live like that. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I, so I, I would agree to that. Now, the question then becomes: Okay, well, to what degree do we want to pursue these things as Christians? In the Old Testament, you have a very land-based ethic. I mean, wow. Mm-hmm. that's you know you can't you can't escape it in the new testament jesus is sending them off to the uttermost parts of the world and doesn't have that same embedded patriotistic you must maintain this land and speak this language and do life this way you know culturally speaking um that you get in the old testament and so there really is a a freeing for the itinerant christian life to say hey we tread lightly on the surface of the earth we're resident aliens we're sojourners here we're just passing through so there's a sense in which for the disciple of Jesus, um, owning a piece of land or being part of community, none of those are promises. Those are gifts. If you have them, be thankful for them, but don't imagine that they're necessary in order for you to follow Christ well. So mm-hmm. I think that's a sense in which we don't want to co-opt our Christian faith to support nationalistic ideas. That would be idolatry and an abomination to the Lord. We want to have the proper priority there. And then that also changes the way that we hold the possessions that we do have and the way that we think about the boundaries of how we respond to the nations that we do live in. So you have to think then, um, as a Christian, if I have a piece of land and some property, 
that's a gift from God. Am I willing to kill somebody to keep it? That's a whole different level there mm -hmm. of, of thinking, okay, mm -hmm. what happens when the gifts that I have that my nationalistic tendencies say are good run up against what Christ asked of me, mm -hmm. even while yeah. I maintain and steward the good gifts that I have. And so um, there are things that I think as Christians, we must be willing to die for, but that doesn't mean that we need to be willing to kill for them either. So there are things you can die for, but things you might not or you can't kill for, and you'll need to make that distinction in your mind as well. So there's a sense in which I think there's this really healthy way that we can be thrilled about whatever country you live in and you're listening to this in. Be thankful for that. And that's not to say that you can't be critical and say, oh, I have some concerns here and there and here about that. But do that not as a whiner. Do it as somebody who's trying to like constructively help and make the place that you live a better place. So I see like a really... Anyway, just so many, op I guess we, we're, we're, we're half an hour into this and we haven't even really gotten started on working out the implications of this, but all of our listeners are clever people and they can connect their dots on their own. But I think, I just, I, I hope that this has been helpful to make that distinction between nationalism as the pursuit of an idea, patriotism as the love of a land. So idea versus geography, a quasi-religion versus something that is a subset and can function within your religious belief structure. For me to be able to parse those out answers a lot of questions for me about the things I can be excited about and the things that I can celebrate. It also shows the things that I'm not going to participate in and the things that I need to lament and the way in which I uh, I tell my kids all the time and it's like fingers pointing back at me. I was like, look, you have two options here. You can whine or you can work. And one of those is going to change the outcome. And I think that's a wonderful Christian posture for us to put ourselves in, in the country that we live in right now, in the culture that we live in right now. You can whine or you can work. Which one of those is going to be an outcome? And if you follow Barry's The Need to Be Whole Hill here, you'll recognize that the type of work that is needed can include some activism and some making yourself known, but it really requires a steady, faithful, um, unwavering, commitment to your community and to the place that you live and the love of the wholeness of all that is gifted and given to you around you. And to live deeply there is the best way in which you can honor the Lord and honor your country and do what's right for the people around you. And so uh, I guess I'm bringing this to a close by kind of pointing to this idea of the idea that you can be a Christian patriot in the sense of loving the land in which you live, the geography itself. You can't be a Christian nationalist and if you have ideas that transcend the commands of Christ, that you're willing to do violence to others in order to achieve, that's an abomination. And so if we separate those out, I think that helps me find uh, a comfortable spot in order to live out my faith and value and love the country that I live in. And so I'm grateful for that contribution and that distinction that is argued over the pages of this book, The Need to Behold by Wendell Berry. You've been listening to Thinking Out Loud podcast where we think out loud about current events and Christian hope. Thanks for listening to Thinking Out Loud. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, book Nathan or Cameron, or if you'd like to support us financially, whether through a one-time donation or on a monthly basis, you can do so on the donate page at www.toltogether.com. That's toltogether.com. And please consider leaving us a five-star rating and sharing this content with your friends. It really does help.